Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture comes from Jonah 3, 1 to 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together once more. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you because you speak to us, and in speaking to us, you change us. You renew us. You show us things that we did not previously see. Revealing in us our desires and motives that are not hidden from you in your sight. Would you by your Holy Spirit now take your word and do what only you can do in our hearts, your people, who are so eager to be fed with the good food you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in case you didn't catch it earlier, my name's Jake. I'm part of the team here. It's good to be with you. A special welcome if you're new or visiting. I hope you caught it. I hope you saw it. I hope you even smiled. God's kindness, God's kindness is all over the text that Marlo read for us this morning. It's all over what we just heard. We see it in his second commissioning of Jonah. We see God's kindness in his persistent sovereignty in getting a prophet, a messenger, to these wicked Ninevites. God's kindness is all over our passage today. God is kind to a people who do not deserve his kindness. He's patient with a people who are violently impatient. 
His grace, his mercy, his kindness is dripping from every page of the book of Jonah. But God's kindness is not to be presumed upon. It's not to be taken for granted. God's kindness, we're told in Scripture, has an aim, a purpose, a goal. In the New Testament, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul speaking to a largely Jewish audience who have tasted God's kindness, says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, hear this, Christ City, that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness leads us to repentance. Repentance appearing four times in verses 8 to 10 of our text this morning. The Hebrew word for repentance, shub, say that ten times fast, shub, is at the center of what's happening in chapter 3 in the book of Jonah. Over and over again we see this. And in many ways, repentance is a thing at the center of this book. It's all been building to this moment, and the fourth chapter is merely Jonah's reaction to this repentance. Repentance. See, Jonah is definitely a book about mercy, about grace, about the mission of God to an unlikely people. It's about God's kindness. But as we've seen this morning, it's also about that to which his kindness leads. Repentance. Repentance. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to walk through three stages of repentance as seen in our text. And I'm going to outline those for us. First is this. Stage one, God's word. Stage two, our sin. Stage three, our lives. So God's word, our sin, our lives. First stage, stage one, God's word. Jonah 3, 1 to 4 says this. Look at it with me. Then the word of the Lord, and this might sound familiar, came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown." I don't know if you've seen this so far, but in the book of Jonah, there's this reoccurring catalyst. This, this, this reoccurring catalyst. This thing happens, and then other things happen. Did you catch it? It happened this morning again. God speaks. He speaks. This whole thing, this whole book started in Jonah 1 verse 1 with, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Jonah is vomited up from the belly of the fish. You remember that graphic phrase? He's vomited up from the belly of the fish. Why? Because the Lord spoke to the fish. And now as Jonah is being recommissioned, by the way, the only prophet in all of Scripture who needs to be commissioned twice is Jonah. As Jonah is being recommissioned, God's word once more plays a central role. God's word is the catalyst for mission. It says in verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And then in verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
but also see this. God's word is not just the catalyst for Jonah's mission. It is the content of Jonah's mission. Jonah's not going to Nineveh to share his gripes, his observances, his complaints, or even do aid work, as good as that might be. No, Jonah goes with God's word. God says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and here's your tool, here's your power, here's my strength, call out against it the message that I tell you. Jonah, like any good prophet, is to be God's mouthpiece. He is to speak God's word to these terribly wicked, terribly evil people. In case you forgot, the Assyrian people were not nice guys and gals. Historically wicked. Historically evil. But repentance, whatever that is, and it's beginning to take shape now, begins always with the proclamation of the word of God. In the Hebrew, verse 2 is emphasizing this, literally reading. I'll put this on the screen. The Hebrew in this verse literally reads like this. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim the proclamation. Say the saying. Tell the truth. Truth the truth. Proclaim the proclamation that I tell you. Repentance, then, is a response not to convincing arguments made by, my, by, made by me. Repentance then is not a response to this sort of like this internal gut feeling we have. No, repentance is a response to reality as God says it is. As God says it is. As God's word says it to be. And because this can be so jarring, I don't know if you've ever been struck between the, you know, the eyes with God's word before, but it can be jarring and uncomfortable, and exposing, and vulnerable. Because this can be so jarring, as human beings, we become quite adept at managing God's Word. And so we do a number of things. Incredibly skilled in the art of self-deception, here's one thing we do. We deceive ourselves through constant distraction. Never having to deal with thoughts or ideas initially unpleasant to us or not to our liking, because a safer, self-curated world is just a smartphone away. Some of you right now have it in your pocket, ready to reach for, in case I say something you don't like, or makes you feel uncomfortable. It's, 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 a, it's a twitch, a, a habit some of us have. So constant distraction is how we dodge God's word. Or we deceive ourselves through procrastination. Sometimes, and this is what I do really well, I'm really good at this, confronted with an uncomfortable belief, we'll say things like, well, I'm going to look more into that later. I'm going to unpack that later. In his great little book, uh, I Told Me So, I Told Me So, Self-Deception and the Christian Life, philosopher Greg Ten Elsoff, he writes this. He says, beliefs are sometimes demanding. Often they break in on us unexpectedly and take to ordering us around like uninvited tyrants. Have you had that experience before? And while the tyrant will have nothing of direct defiance, though he can often be appeased by the promise of deferred obedience. I'll deal with that later. I'll think about that later. That's a good thought for later. Or here's another thing we do. 
re-rationalize our decisions, right? We seek out authors and influencers and theologians who already agree with us, right? Friends who are quick to affirm our bias. I like her, I like him, because they never argue with me. They never tell me I'm wrong. What a good friend. All these things, distraction, procrastination, rationalization, are schemes of the flesh opposed to the truth of God's word and God's rule. And it is our way of actively suppressing what is abundantly clear. And by the way, this is not new. We've always been doing this as people. Before smartphones, we found a way to do it. Before we could look up a blog that supported our viewpoint, we've, we've already been doing it. Paul says in Romans 1, listen to the language he uses in Romans verse, uh, chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, listen, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is, is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And he says, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The, the prophet Obadiah says it more succinctly, if that was too long for you. The pride of your heart has deceived you. Repentance is God's gift in response to God's word. Again, the preacher, the speaker, the one who comes with God's word in, in his or her mouth need not be eloquent. Some of you know the story of the famous pastor Jonathan Edwards. Some of you have heard how his congregants have described his preaching. And you'd be hard-pressed to describe Jonathan Edwards as dynamic or even accessible. Nonetheless, it was his preaching that lit the bonfire that was the first great awakening. Likewise, look at our text, Jonah's message is not dynamic. No one's asking Jonah to, to do a TED Talk. It's not dynamic. And while what is recorded is perhaps a summary of a longer message, it's worth noting that in the Hebrew, Jonah's sermon to the Ninevites is five words. Five words. And maybe you're wishing the sermon this morning was five words. Five words is what he preached to the Ninevites. Five words. That's all God needs. So if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, I just want to plead with you for a second. Turn off your phone. Do away with thoughts that this is interesting content to be discussed later. And don't be so quick to rationalize away what I'm saying. Because I know my voice is in conversation with ten other voices in your head right now. Hear the message of God's word. Listen. The Lord our God is holy and just, creator of heaven and earth. He sent his son Jesus to save rebellious sinners. Rebellious sinners like you and like me. And through Jesus Christ, we can be saved. 
If we turn and put our faith in Jesus and repent of our sin, we can be saved today. For there is coming a day when King Jesus will not put up with evil forever. No, Jesus is just. And Jesus, the just judge, comes soon to judge the living and the dead. But repentance is not just for those of you who don't know Jesus. Repentance is for all of us this morning. Repentance is not just a one-time thing, it's an all-the-time thing. And maybe you, you can resonate with this. As followers of Jesus, we're continually struck by our ability, our propensity to wander away from God's word. To wander away from his ways. Our old habits we're finding die hard. And so long-time disciple of Jesus, listen, give me your ear for a moment. Whatever the Lord is speaking to you from his word this morning, however hard it may seem, hear the words of Hebrews 3.15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The first stage of repentance is an honest reckoning with God's word. Allowing it to, to hit us, to divide us, to expose us. Stage two involves a proper understanding of our sin. This is the second point. And so twice, God's word comes to people in our text this morning. First, it comes to Jonah. You saw that. Second, God's word comes to Nineveh through Jonah. And while the circumstances are different, God's word challenges for both groups, for both people, the hearer's sin. So Jonah is being challenged in his uh, sin of preference, his ethnocentricity, his unwillingness to go to those people who do those things who are not like me. He's being challenged by God's word. He doesn't want to go. Nineveh, likewise, is being challenged to repent from their evil and murderous ways, right? It, it's challenging their very identity as a violent people, a famously violent people. It's who we are. It's what we do, right? We're historically grotesque. But while both Jonah and Nineveh share a common response of at least some obedience, what is clear in the text is that their repentance is only partial. Jonah and Nineveh only have partial repentance because Jonah and Nineveh only have a partial understanding of their sin. Let, let, let me show you this. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And surprise, surprise, instead of going down, right, we saw that in chapter 1, instead of going down, Jonah gets up. He's obedient. Verse 3, so Jonah arose, it's different than the first time, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Notice, Jonah doesn't say anything here. There is no indication from him that this time is different. There's no indication that his time in the storm or in the fish has created in Jonah an obedience that proceeds from a willing and joyful and loving heart. Now God says get up, and so he gets up. Why? Well, probably because there's nowhere else to go. He's tried running, and that didn't turn out so well. He's been hemmed in by God's sovereignty. Now skip down with me to the response of the Ninevites. Jonah preaches his brief sermon, his five-word sermon. Then it says, verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. 
Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. These are the adornments of repentance, right? And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed on drink or let, let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, the king says, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Again, the response to God's word is admirable. The vestiges, the signs of repentance, right? Fasting, sackcloth, decrees, saying the right thing. This is on display from every level of society, from the king to the cattle. And yet, as many commentators and scholars suggest, it seems unlikely that Nineveh's repentance was a saving one. That Nineveh was grafted now into the covenant people of God. I want to give you a few reasons for this. In the Old Testament, through the examples of Rahab and Naaman, these examples of foreigners calling upon Israel's God, Yahweh, we find that when foreigners are brought into God's covenant people, they in fact do call on Yahweh, the Lord. They use God's covenant name. They don't use the general name for God that we find in our text in Jonah 3, Elohim. They use God's covenant name. They call it to Yahweh as a sign of forsaking the idols, forsaking the other deities, and turning solely and completely to Yahweh. Again, we don't find that in our text this morning. There's no mention of Yahweh on the Ninevites' behalf. It's just Elohim more generally. There's another reason. The Old Testament prophets, when speaking to Israel at least, for them, repentance involved not only the stopping of the evil thing, so don't do the bad thing or the unrighteous thing, but also, as I said, the rejection of other gods, and also, thirdly, the, the proactive seeking of justice. The proactive fighting against oppression. Repentance was not just a stopping something, not just a turning to Yahweh, but also the proactive living a particular way. And we'll see this in a moment. Again, all we find in our text this morning is the Ninevites just stopping something. They don't call on Yahweh. And there's no sense that a great sort of justice movement formed in Assyria or in this land. Thirdly, what's more, if we go to the prophet Nahum, Maybe you've read Nahum. We see, we learn, tragically, that Nineveh's moral reform did not last long. It is not long before the Lord appoints a great power, Babylon, to come and take out the Ninevites. Take out the Assyrian Empire. Judge them for their persistent wickedness. Like Jonah... Nineveh's repentance was superficial. And like Jonah, it was because of a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of sin. As one theologian, Sam Storms, puts it in an essay he wrote, which is really good. He says, true repentance is first rooted in the realization of how sinful an action, emotion, belief, or way of life is. 
Then one must be grieved by how offensive and grieving sin is to God, not simply afraid of God's retribution for your sin. In other words, he says this, repentance must be rooted in a high value on God, not a high value on oneself. Jonah repented because he saw no other course of action for his life. Not because he saw how his nationalism and ethnocentrism offended a holy God. Nineveh likewise repented out of pure survival, out of a high value on oneself, not because they saw the surpassing worth of the Lord, not because of how offensive their violence was to God. In that same essay, which that excerpt from Storm comes, he goes on to distinguish between true repentance and false repentance. And he uses the language of attrition versus contrition. Attrition versus contrition. He writes this. Attrition is regret for sin prompted by a fear for oneself. Oh no, I got caught. What will happen to me? Contrition, on the other hand, true repentance, is regret for the offense against God's love and pain for having grieved the Holy Spirit. In other words... It is possible to repent out of fear of reprisal rather than from a hatred of sin. We see this actually in a case study in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we find the Corinthian church, who we've looked at for the past few years. We find the Corinthian church, and Paul's just written to them a hard letter, and he knows that some in the church will be grieved by this hard pastoral word, but he probes that grief. He's a good pastor. He says, Let, let's dig deeper here. And he explains to them that there's such a thing as godly grief and worldly grief. He says this, 2 Corinthians 7, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. I love Paul. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. I don't regret it, though I did for a little bit. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved what? into repenting, into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Ultimately, my words are for your good. You suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Just grief for grief's sake. Grief because I'm offended or grief because, you know, my feelings are hurt. That's just death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. I don't know if you've experienced this in parenting, but I was taught this, we were taught this a long time ago as parents, by older, wiser parents. One of the greatest questions you can ask as a parent is this. You're disciplining your child. You're sitting them down. You're, you're having a conversation with them. And, and you can ask them this, ready? Are you sad, because you're clearly sad right now. Are you sad because you aren't getting what you wanted? Or are you sad because your sin makes God sad? Are you throwing this tantrum? Because you're just not getting what you wanted? Or are you grieved? Because your sin makes God sad. 
I actually find this question works well with adults as well. Are we sad, even repentant, because you got found out? Because your secret habits were exposed? Because your relationships are in shambles? Does your sadness lead you to only feeling sorry for yourself? Or are you sad because God's word has given you a glimpse of God's holiness and we know we have not stacked up? And we know we fall desperately short again and again and again. There is a world of difference between godly grief and worldly grief. And it makes all the difference which one it is. As Paul says, true repentance, godly grief, produces in us righteous indignation, righteous fear, a righteous longing and zeal, a righteous living. And to see that turn to stage three, our lives, our lives. Last point. If it's not clear by now, let me make sure it is. Repentance is a gift from God. It is a gift from God. It wasn't the eloquence of Jonah's sermon that led the Ninevites to repent of their partial or of their sin, nor was it the eloquence of Jonathan Edwards' preaching that set off the first great awakening. Repentance is God's spirit taking God's word to accomplish God's purposes in the lives of his children. It is God doing all this through and through and through, and it is a gift. It's painful, it hurts, it's a gift. And so repentance can be all, this, all these things and yet require from us a response. One scholar explains this tension saying this. He says repentance is something God gives or grants. And yet, at the same time, repentance is something man does. It's something we do. Change living alone does not signal repentance, right? Jonah technically obeyed and went the right way. Said the right words. Nineveh technically stopped from doing those things that so grieved the Lord. But repentance must include changed living. It must include changed living. It is a changed heart turned wholly to God, demonstrated in changed living, that signals to the watching world true repentance. Repentance, then, we could say, happens both with our mouth and with our feet because it's happening in our heart. So in Matthew 3, verse 8, John the Baptist, he looks out at these brood of vipers, these religious leaders looking for another spiritual experience, wanting John to baptize them. And John says, no, you don't need this. You don't need more spiritual experiences. What you need, Matthew 3, verse 8, is to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So stop looking for spiritual experiences. Just be obedient. When the Apostle Paul is recapping his ministry, in chains before King Agrippa, he says, here's what I did when I went to the Gentile nations. Here was my ministry plan. Ready? He says, I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. What did I say when I was there? Well, here it is. That they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Jesus' first words in his ministry Repent, for the kingdom of God is near or at hand. I was at a meeting this week when someone brought up this term sexual atheism. 
I'd never heard of it before. But apparently, as they went on to explain, amongst some people, it has become accepted and celebrated that when it comes to our sex lives, it is okay to live as if in this realm, this sphere of our sex lives, God is not real. To be an atheist in that realm. It's called sexual atheism. But if what we see about repentance is to be believed, then sexual atheists are not just mistaken Christians, they're not Christians. Listen, we are all constantly discovering areas of our life where we need to submit or resubmit to the Lordship of Jesus, right? That happens to all of us all the time. Hear me clearly. But when we are openly and willingly and proudly and boldly proclaiming that there's a part of our life that Jesus is not king, that is not to be a bad Christian. It's to not be a Christian. It's to not be a follower of Jesus. In some ways, at least sexual atheists have the integrity of describing their functional relationship to God. What about for us? What about for me? How, how many of us are financial atheists? Believing that when it comes to money, what I purchase, when I purchase, what I invest in, how I invest, what I do with my money belongs to me. God's not real in this realm. Financial atheists. How many of us are workplace atheists? When it comes to my nine to five, my time, my work, my behavior, what I do in that office place or on my computer screen, that belongs to me. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 19 to 20, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. That's Jesus. He's gentle and kind, loving and compassionate, gracious and patient. Jesus. In the words of theologian uh, Herman Bovink, we could say then that repentance consists of the old and the rising of the new man. Sorry, the dying of the old and the rising of the new man. So what is the dying of the old man? It is a hearty sorrow that we have by our sins provoked God's wrath and in which we more and more hate those sins and flee from them. And what is the rising of the new man? It is hearty joy in God through Christ and a desire and love for living in all good works for God's sake. So it's a stopping something. It's a turning to the Lord and a desire for living in all good works for God's sake. Why might we have hearty joy in God through Christ? Because Jesus does not just give us a second chance like God does to Jonah. Jesus gives us a new heart. We become a new person, a new man in the words of Bovink, in order to obey. We become new people. His righteousness, Jesus' obedience, is credited to us. Meaning when we repent from our sin and put our faith in Jesus, the expectation that we live new, repentant lives is not solely on our shoulders. I was talking with Daniel, the lead pastor at Christ City Surrey this week, and he said this, it's so good. 
God doesn't just want us to be better, but by giving us Christ's righteousness, by giving us Christ's obedience, by crediting that to us, he makes us better. He makes us, in the words of Paul, new creation, new people. See, when Jonah 3 verse 10 says this, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When it says this, when we read that verse, it is describing a God whose wrath has for a moment been staved off, been appeased. But as history tells us, as Nahum tells us, Nineveh would get what it justly deserves. But if we are in Christ this morning, we do not have to live under the same fear the Ninevites lived under. If we are in Christ this morning, the full wrath of God, the full anger of God, his just anger has fallen on Jesus at the cross. All of it. Every ounce, every drop, every bit of it. Jesus has borne in his body on the cross all of our sin, all of the terrible historical evil that you and I are guilty of and deserve judgment for. Jesus bore it. Jesus wore it. Jesus did that. And in doing so, in dying on the cross for our sins, Jesus opens up a door for all of us who had come to him this morning called repentance. A way out, not only from under the wrath of God, but a door to flourishing relationship with the one that we were made for, with the one who loves us and is patient and kind to us. However you've come this morning, however you've come, unbeliever, new believer, seasoned saint, receive the gift of repentance today. Do not stop up your ears to the word of God. Grieve your sin. Not for its inconvenience. Not for how it impacts you. But grieve it for what it is before a holy God. But let that grief turn into joy. Joy that despite your sin, in Christ, God has accepted you. Now live your life fully and completely, wholly and without abandon for our King Jesus. Christ City, may we be a repentant people. Let's pray. So Jesus, we believe that this morning, that it's only through your word through your speaking to us by your Holy Spirit, that sin can be exposed in us and that it's only by the work of Jesus on the cross that that sin which is then exposed can be dealt with in a satisfactory way. All our ignoring, all our procrastination, all our distracting ourselves cannot atone for our sin. But Jesus, you can. So I ask that each and every person in this room this morning would fly to the cross, would cling to you, Jesus, would turn in faith and repentance to what you have done, that we might have life and life to the full. 
Lord, help us. Pour out your mercy and your grace. You have been so kind as to lead us to this point. In Christ's name, amen.